Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Heidi Abdelhady. Dr. Heidi uh, Abdelhady uh, received her MD and uh, did her residency in internal medicine at Boston University. Uh, followed it up here, so it's a bit of a homecoming, um, doing her pulmonary critical care fellowship um, here in Maryland. Uh, stayed on faculty for a few years, ran the cardiosurgical ICU um, before moving across town over to St. Agnes Hospital where she works primarily in the ICU um, and is uh, a very uh, active member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. She was the president of our um, Baltimore chapter for a few years and is a wonderful teacher and a great intensivist, so it's a pleasure to have you here today. Hi. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Um, today I'm going to talk to you about really acid-base status, and it's something that I think we all do on a daily basis, but I wonder how many of us actually think about it in a systematic manner and approach it in a systematic manner and think about it as a moving target. So the topic of today's talk is who's who in the acid-base story. <clears throat> Let's start with an actual case because I want to see how you guys approach things. And I'm very, very interactive, so I'm going to start with you. Okay, go ahead. This is a 43-year-old lady with a history of hep C and cirrhosis. She was undergoing treatment with Harvoni on month three of six, because she's a cirrhotic. Um, had septic shock, was on three pressors, a hydrocortisone drip, and it was all due to Klebsiella empyema. We had source control uh, managed, AKI, ARDS, et cetera, et cetera. This is her series of pHs, 699, 713-720, 732-738. So I come on in the morning, I take over, start my week, and the residents tell me her gas is 738-29-126. What do you do now? You happy with that? Do you like it? Good. Throw the ball to someone else. You, you're going to pick who's next, and that's how it'll go, okay? Throw the ball. All right, good. Is there any other piece of it? Pick it up. Come on, pick it up. Somebody pick it up. Who got it? Do, is there any other piece of information do you want right now? Is there another piece of information that you want right now? Ma'am next to him, anything else you want to know right now? So he told you, some, she's trying to compensate for something. Throw the ball. Throw the ball. Next. Go ahead. No, come on. Sir next to him. What do you think? Is there any other piece of information you want to get right now? Okay, so you want more information, okay? So, let's start with what we always have on the computer. Here's her uh, BMP. What's the what are you gonna look at next? Throw the ball, who has the ball? Oh, Neil, come on, you have to catch the ball. Nah, no, I'm not kidding. Neil, you pick, you got it. Go ahead. How about the lady that threw it to Neil? What do you think? What, what's, what, what piece of information are you going to get from this BMP, right? This is real life, guys. So her bicarb is what? Which one of these is the pointer? Oh, okay. Right. Okay. What else? What other piece of information? Gap. Who said that? What's the gap? 20-something. Okay. So it's high, right? She has a high gap. All right. So the gap is 28. What other piece of information do you want to have? And this is all quick on rounds when you're working, when you have a gap. I mean, you already gave the correction for the albumin. I did. We cheated. But yes, you want to know what the albumin is and correct it. And on the subsequent slides, we're going to go through this entire algorithm of who, what, where, and how we do this, okay? 
Her albumin was two and a half. How many people have heard of, here heard of a strong ion difference, the concept of strong ion difference? How many people have used it? How many people use it via the shortcut? Strong ion difference. Cations, less anions, right? We're going to talk about that. Good. So I'm going to tell you something new, or not new, but something that we don't use practically, but people who are critical care providers should be aware of it, okay? This lady's lactate was 16, okay? So when you first looked at her gas, 7, uh, 3, 8, 29, 126, you had the clue something was going on. And to all, for all intents and purposes, the gas looks pretty okay. Yet you have a lady who has a lactate of 16, right? So we're in trouble. So the purpose of this talk is for you to go through things systematically. Don't look at things on face value. I want you to put things in the context of what your patient is and why you are the person taking care of them. So acid-based disorders are common in all critically, in most critical Ill, uh, patients. The morbidity and mortality is not really associated with the acid-based dysfunction itself, but really the underlying cause that's contributing to the acidosis or the alkalosis. Accurate and meaningful evaluation, sort of the process we just went through very quickly, really requires a good history and physical and simultaneous measurements, not only an ABG, but also your electrolytes and an albumin at the very least. One must understand compensatory mechanisms so you can know what is normal compensation versus is there a third disorder at play. And one must also understand the effects of intervention. We give people lots of saline, and we'll talk about saline acidosis. We give people um, bicarb, and we'll talk about this. That's a talk in and of itself, that whole controversy. But people use it. We dialyze people, et cetera. So we do impact um, acid-based status. Let's talk about body buffers so that we can set the, um, the background for the rest of this discussion. The, the primary buffer in our body, in the in and extracellular, is really the carbonic acid bicarbonate um, combination. Um, there's some proteins, and most of those are intracellular, and there are phosphate buffers. But the fundamental one in our blood is the carbonic acid and bicarbonate uh, buffer system. Bicarbonate is made in two places in our body in the red blood cells where the enzyme carbonic anhydrase lives, and also it's made in the gastric parietal cells. And the substrate used there is water and carbon dioxide, which are the byproducts of metabolism. And the equation here is, is a fundamental one that I want you guys to really keep in mind because it's gonna come up over and over and over again throughout this discussion, but also in your own line of work every day when you're evaluating patients. So you have water and uh, carbon dioxide makes um, carbonic acid, which further dissociates to a proton, and that's going to be fundamental to a lot of this discussion, and bicarbonate, okay? So things don't come out of nowhere. This is how it comes to exist. And this is how our body continuously makes stores of both acid and base. And the purpose of that is to maintain pH homeostasis, okay? The second buffer system is our respiratory system, and that works by um, ventilating, meaning you get rid of CO2 to control pH. And the third is our renal system, and our renal system has a normal mechanism that takes place every day, and then there's the compensatory mechanisms that go into place when one is ill. Um, normal mechanisms include distal tubules secreting um, hydrogen ion, um, and hence you have an uh, acidified urine, and then the compensatory mechanisms is where you increase the rate of proton excretion to compensate for the failure of the other two buffer systems that I mentioned to you above, okay? And uh, the kidneys also manage to excrete other metabolic acids. 
there are three primary ways in which we um, approach uh, sorting out acid-base disorders. All of them describe the effect of PaCO2 on acid-base status, but they differ in the way you look at the metabolic components of acid-base. Uh, the first one, and the gentleman up front here mentioned it, is base excess, the concept of base excess. So people like to stick to the word base excess rather than saying deficit excess. People get confused. Is it high? Is it low? Do you have too much proton or too little proton? So we use base excess, and it's either a negative number or a positive number. And a negative number is, a, is an acidotic um, process going on, and a positive one uh, implies alkalemia. And this method uses nomograms and algorithms to determine the amount of acid or base required in vivo, in vitro rather, to bring the pH of the blood up to 7.40. The physiochemical or the Stewart method, um, this is where the strong ion difference concept comes into place, uses three independent variables. And the physiologic or the traditional method, which most of us are most familiar with, uses the anion gap and bicarbonate. And this is where the Henderson-Hasselbach equation comes into play. The acid ba base excess method, again, it quantifies the amount of acid, like I said, or base you need to add to whole blood. Um, in vivo, we really can't do that. And, and one of the other principles is that the PaCO2 has to be, remain at, at 40, okay? You and I know that most patients we take care of, none of them have a PaCO2 of 40, right? None of their gases are normal. This is why nomograms and um, calculations have to take place to allow a uh, base excess to be reported that is valid, okay? And I put the equation there just so you can see where the numbers come from. Again, you have bicarbonate and pH, and this is how you come up because you have the patient's bicarb less 24, which is the normal bicarb, the patient's pH less the normal pH. This is how you end up with a number that's a negative number, okay? But these are the players in the base excess um, equation. And I mentioned to you what positive and negative mean. Um, base excess was re really came into play in the 80s when uh, Anderson and Sigard, uh, 90s rather, published this paper that made it sort of a more acceptable method by which we can quickly assess acid-base status. And I included this in the um, packet that I sent to Suzanne Ventura um, for your own reference in the future. Um, it's easy. It's readily available. You get a gas, boom, it's right in your face. Um, the problem with it, however, is that it doesn't identify etiology of disease, most don't, and it doesn't identify any coexisting metabolic disorders. So all you know is there's an acidosis and that's it, okay? The physiologic or the traditional method identifies the four major disorders that we all talk about. Metabolic acidosis, metabolic alkalosis, respiratory acidosis, and respiratory alkalosis. And this method is really guided again by the relationship of carbonic acid and bicarbonate buffers. And it's based, based on the isohydric principle, which all that means is acids are proton donors and bases are proton acceptors. And the relationship between pH and bicarbonate is described in the Henderson-Hasselbach equation, where you have the uh, 6.1 uh, 6 plus the logarithm of bicarbonate divided by um, carbonic acid. And now the relationship of the proton, PaCO2, and bicarb is represented in this equation, where proton equals 24 times your PaCO2 divided by bicarb. How many people have ever used this equation in real life? Yes, yes. How many people 
have found errors in the lab where when you, you just go, this doesn't make sense to me, this blood gas, and you do it and you figure out how much proton is in the blood, which, and I'll tell you how you can figure out what the pH is. And by the way, when I took my critical care boards the first time and when I recertified, both times this equation was on the test. Um, so how do, what does this mean? So you calculate a proton, but what are you gonna do with it, right, practically? Well, there's an absolute relationship between amount of proton in blood and pH. And between the range of a pH of 7.20 and 7.5, the pH changes by 0.1 units for every one millimole of proton change, okay? And as proton goes up, pH goes down, all right? And it's a linear relationship during this gap. It then starts to scatter the further out you go. So you can always keep this in mind. If things don't look right to you, you do a quick equation, you have all these numbers right in front of you. We make a lot of volatile acids, and the volatile acid that is in our blood is CO2. It is the majority of acid that is produced. We make 15,000 millimoles of CO2 daily, and uh, plus the, uh, from the metabolism of fats and carbohydrates. And our lungs are what work to exhale the CO2 and control pH. We also make a fair number of non-volatile acids, 1 to 1.5 milliequivalents per kilogram per day. And these are a result of metabolism of sulfates, phosphates, and amino acids, uh, amino acids and the incomplete metabolism of fats and carbohydrates. And non-volatile acids are excreted by the kidney. So you can see how with renal failure and or um, pulmonary disease, um, patients begin to develop chronic um, metabolic processes. Acidemia and alkalemia defined. And acidosis is really the process causing the increased protons, and alkalosis is the process causing the decreased protons. An imbalance occurs when ventilation changes. You get an increase in non-volatile acid production. The kidneys can no longer excrete uh, proton or reabsorb bicarbonate, or you have an increase of GI losses, whether it's from above or from below, whether it's acid or whether it's base. <clears throat> I have about four slides. They're dense on the Stewart method. I think you can't have a talk on acid-base as critical care providers. If I were doing a talk for a different audience, I would never even bring this up. It's irrelevant. But for you as, as critical care people, you got to um, be familiar with this. So what is this physiochemical uh, approach to acid-base? Well, a guy named Peter Stewart in the early 80s published a paper followed by a book, followed by a, another book, where he really outlined um, how electrolytes influence the dissociation of water, hence the production of proton. And he wanted to look at all the moving parts involved in acid-base function and dysfunction. And we said cations and anions ultimately are what are responsible for your acid-base status, right? You don't just make acid suddenly. You have to have disequilibrium in anions and cations. And the body forces itself to balance, and this is why he came up with this physiochemical um, um, way, and I'm going to show you what it is. So it's based on proton concentration and biological solution. Proton is determined by the dissociation of water, equation above. And in his paper, he said, an approach to acid base, which revolutionizes our ability to understand, predict, and control what happens to the hydrogen ion. And if we look um, at, at these different... Um, diagrams here. You see the traditional method, the factors that go into play, 
the albumin adjusted, i.e. anion gap adjusted, the uh, anions and cations that are into play, and then the full method where you're looking at everything involved. And um, you see there's a whole lot more involved, which is a much more accurate reflection of what our cellular and um, intravascular milieu really is. So the dissociation of water is dependent on the differences in charge, okay, between the strong cations and the strong anions. And cations typically outnumber anions. The independent variables are the PaCO2, the strong ion difference, and the non-volatile weak acids that we all produce. Changes in any of these independent ones will ultimately influence pH, bicarb, proton, and um, OH production. So the strong ion difference, the apparent strong ion difference, is where you take all of your positively charged cations, sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium, and you subtract your chloride and your lactate, all the negatively charged anions in our blood. And I put chloride and sodium in red on purpose because what I was getting to initially when I said the shortcut, no one has time to you know, sit here and do all these numbers, but if the shortcut is you just subtract the chloride from sodium because they are the most abundant of cations and anions in our blood. And if we presume a normal sodium is 140, and if we presume a normal um, chloride is about 100 or 102, this is where a normal strong ion difference of about 38 to 40 comes into play. So that's where that normal range comes from. And if you have a higher number, meaning you have low chloride, that implies you have an acidosis. And if you have a low number, meaning you have, you're rich in chloride, okay, that implies there's probably an alkalosis in play. So it's a very, very quick method to figure out there's something else going on. And that first example I showed you, the lady that had a pH of 7, 3, 8, 29, 100 and something, her strong ion difference was 45. So even if we didn't have the lactate, you knew there was something going on, you knew it was metabolic, um, the bicarb was low, and when you see a strong ion difference that's pretty high, you know that, you know, don't be fooled by that pH of 7.38, you're still on the Titanic, okay? The, strong, the effective strong ion difference estimates how many anions are needed to balance the excess cations and to maintain electroneutrality. I'm not going to go through this equation again. Part of the downside of this uh, method is it's too cumbersome, okay? These are his books. Um, this uh, website actually is, is sort of dedicated to his work. It's, uh, it's very comprehensive. It identifies all the relevant moving parts that contribute um, to metabolic acid disorders, but it's not practical for everyday use, and the clinical relevance has never been made clear. And in ICU critically ill patients, this method, the Stewart method, versus the traditional method, really pan out to give you the same results. One is not superior to the other. So that said, let's go to the traditional method, the physiologic method that we're all more familiar with. And we'll start with metabolic acidosis. So metabolic acidosis can coexist certainly with other metabolic disorders, the mixed disorders. You generally have a low bicarbonate, which suggests that somebody has a metabolic acidosis, but you also have to consider the albumin, which is also a weak acid. And albumin carries negative charge each gram of albumin carries about negative three charges, okay? And you'll understand why the anion gap is the number that it is in a moment. Um, unmeasured anions and coexisting disorders um, can also occur, and by measuring um, 
anion gap, you can pick this up. In healthy people, unmeasured anions and are greater than unmeasured cations. I just told you a slide ago, cations are greater than anions, right? But those are the measured ones. Those are the ones we get on our BMP. The unmeasured ones, the opposite is true. I'm going to skip this um, for a moment because we're going to go into the exact numbers of how do you calculate compensation. But in general, compensatory mechanisms include decreasing your CO2 by ventilation, exchanging intracellular sodium and potassium for extracellular proton. So someone's acidotic and they come in and, you know, they're hyperkalemic. It's not because something else happened. It's because of that exchange. Proton into cell, potassium out of cell and um, an increase in renal uh, proton excretion to make ammonia to ammonium and to begin the regeneration of new bicarbonate. All of those are compensatory mechanisms. So let's take the systematic approach. Can you get, does this project well to you at all? No. Okay. So this is actually in the second paper that I forwarded to Suzanne Ventura. It was a really good review article in the New England Journal of Medicine um, talking about the approach to the, the physiologic approach to acid-based disorders. But basically what this is saying is the top is an acidemia. And <clears throat> here we have metabolic acidosis. And on the left, you have a respiratory acidosis. I'm going to stick to this algorithm here. Okay. So You've defined a metabolic acidosis. You want to know what is the respiratory response. And I'm going to go through the next slides, going through one by one, how do we do that? Second, do you have an anion gap or not? If you have a high anion gap, is there a third disorder in play? Okay, and that's where we calculate delta delta, and I'll review how we do that. And if somebody's obtunded, unconscious, you don't have a story, they have a history of substance abuse, they imbibe this, this, and that, if they're friends of Jim, Jack, and Johnny, you really want to get an osmolar gap because you have no idea why this person is unconscious, especially if their head CT is negative. So an osmolar gap lets you know if there's other um, material on board that you can't pick up. If they have a normal anion gap or a non-anion gap, yet they have a metabolic acidosis, this is where you have to figure out, is this GI in origin or renal in origin? And this is where your urinary anion gap starts to help. And we will go through that calculation as well. So the ABCs of ABGs, you ask yourself the first question, is the pH normal? Does an acidemia or an alkalemia exist? And if the answer is yes, your second question is, does the PaCO2 fully explain pH? If it fully explains the pH, you have a pure respiratory acidosis or alkalosis. If it does not fully explain the pH, then you have to ask yourself, does an anion gap exist? And if yes, then you have to correct for albumin. Paraprotonemias, the correction is in the opposite direction, and we're going to get into the numerics in a minute. And has the appropriate compensation occurred? If compensation is not appropriate, then does a third acid-based disorder exist? So this is the way I've approached acid-based blood gases every day whenever I see one in my head. You know, you're not getting out a piece of paper and calculating things um, to fully understand what's going on with the patient. So if the pH is not normal and we go to look at the PaCO2, what is the relationship between PaCO2 and pH? For every change of 10, right, in the acute setting, whether it's up or down, it's an inverse relationship. For a delta 10 in PaCO2, your pH changes by 0.08. In chronic disease states, it's still a delta of 10 for the PaCO2, but your pH changes by 0.03. And you get a pretty good idea there. Do you have full, is this a pure respiratory process or not? 
Your second question is, <clears throat> so if, if, if it's not a pure respiratory acidosis or alkalosis, you have to ask the third question. And the third question was, does an anion gap exist? If yes, check albumin and correct. So the anion gap is calculated here. For each one gram that albumin is less than four, okay, you add two and a half back to the anion gap. I usually just use three because it's really three charges per one gram of albumin. So, for example, if we measure an anion gap to be 20, but the patient's albumin is two, then we're gonna add five back to the anion gap. So their corrected anion gap is really 25. And you know, you look at this and you go, well, it was high, now you're just telling me it's higher. Okay, it's still high. But it makes a difference when you get those anion gaps of 10, 11, 12, 13, right? Where you go, oh, I'm not gonna be a purist, it's 13. Makes a difference. You add five back, now you're talking 18. You can't ignore that. So you have to do it. And P.S., albumin is most accurate on presentation, right? Once you start doing all kinds of things to people by day two, three, you have an albumin, you came in with an albumin of four, three and a half. Most of our patients don't have that, but let's say they did. By day three, they're 1.9, right? So albumin is most accurate on presentation, but it is what it is. <clears throat> so the one thing I want to say about anion gap, and you could see it in our patient, the first lady I showed you, is it can miss a lactic acidosis. 50% of metabolic acidoses in critically ill patients are due to lactic acidosis, okay? So you have to look. <clears throat> now, compensation. You have an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Who has the ball? Who has the ball? Throw the ball. Oh, your program director. Throw the ball. All right, so when you have a metabolic acid, and then you know what, throw the ball back to me because you guys are lethargic with the ball, all right? So you have a metabolic acidosis. How do you compensate for that? Use the winters at 1.5 by cup plus eight plus something. So what are you doing? Tell me what, you just told me an you equation. What have, are you doing? You know, the body tries to compensate by blowing up the yeah. volatile acid. Yeah, yeah, and you're very right, winter's formula, right? So. And what does the question that it answers is, right? We might know formulas, you may know numbers, but you always have to ask yourself, what question are you answering? And the question you're answering is, what ought the PACO2 be given a metabolic acidosis, okay? And yes, that is the equation. So 1.5 times the measured bicarb plus eight, and that number's plus or minus two. That's what the PACO2 should be on the gas. And if it's within that range, it's an appropriate compensation. If it's not, if it's much lower than that, then you also have a respiratory alkalosis. And if it's much higher, then you also have a concomitant respiratory acidosis. And by the way, this presentation is with Suzanne, so you're all welcome to have it forwarded to you with all the equations there. <clears throat> a shortcut is the last two digits of the pH equals PaCO2 if the pH is greater than seven and respiratory compensation is complete, sorry. PaCO2 is another shortcut as you add 15 to the bicarb. And the PaCO2 drops one to one and a half millimeters per um, one milli equivalent drop in bicarb, okay? So these are all the ways with which you can start to assess what your patient is at baseline maybe and what their new baseline may become. All right, throw the ball back at me. All right, so seven, uh, 
724-6112. What do you think? Is, is the pH normal? No. Does the PaCO2, is it higher, is it acidemia or alkalemia? Okay. Does the PaCO2 fully explain the pH? For each, if 40 is normal, and we said every 10 change changes your pH by 0.08, we're 60, right? So that's 20 more than normal. So what's the difference in pH? It's a factor of two, right? 0.08 times two, 0.16, right? So what's this pH? 740 minus 0.16, it's a pure respiratory acidosis. All right, throw the ball. <laughs> you guys are so nice to each other. All right, ma'am, 734-60-112. Is the pH normal? All right, you're being a purist. Okay, it's close enough. I'm not going to be bothered with that. Is the CO2 high or low? High. What do you think this person's problem is? And look how much oxygen they're on. They're probably a... Yeah, they're chronic. It's chronic. Don't bother them. Don't try to change that CO2. Don't make it perfect because you're going to give them another problem. And we'll talk about post-hypercapnic uh, changes and what that does when you have someone coming in, a COPD or you have to do this and that to them, and then you wonder why you can't get them off the vent because of what you did to their CO2 in a few slides. Throw the ball, ma'am. <laughs> All right, let's pretend you caught it. What's, tell me about the third gas. We have acetamia. Yeah. Exactly. So we all know the, uh, you know, great mud piles, right? Mnemonic. Now it's gold mark. You know, it's all the same things, just rearranged differently. But what is kind of new to this list, how many people have heard of oxoproline? How many people, yeah. So we all kind of worry about Tylenol as being a problem for your liver, you know, OD, et cetera. But you can actually develop a metabolic acidosis. What Tylenol does is that it inhibits glutathione. Glutathione is one of the most potent antioxidants in our body, okay? And it's a contributor to NAD, NADPH um, mechanisms. And so when you inhibit glutathione, you suddenly have all this NAD plus H out there, acid, 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 proton, 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 being produced, and you get a metabolic acidosis, all right? And then you have your lactates, DNL, and, you know, the, one is from hypoxia, the other one is from, um, you know, whether you have um, cellular um, problems, mitochondrial problems, drug-induced, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> how about now the, the, the third disorder? So we kind of looked at uh, that third one that you mentioned to me. You said there's probably something else going on, and indeed there is. But how do you quantify that? How do you prove that? You kind of have a hunch. Well, your hunch is right. So this is where you um, prove or, or, or measure or, or you know, numerically come up with what is this third disorder. And this is where the delta-delta comes in, all right? The easiest way to figure out your delta-delta while you're standing there on rounds, you just, whatever the measured gap is that you measured, so in that lady it was, what, 28 or something? 28 minus 12. Um, and that's 16, and you just add this back to the bicarb on your BMP. And if you have a number over 26, you also have a concomitant metabolic alkalosis. If you have a number less than 24, you also have a non-gap 
non-GAP metabolic acidosis. There are lots of, there's lots of talk about the delta gap now. How many people have heard about the delta gap? Okay. So delta gap is where you take the difference in anion gap from the difference in bicarb, okay? And you're either looking for just a positive or a negative number. There's no number. This number means that. So a positive number tells you that an alkalosis is present, and a negative number tells you that a non-gap acidosis is also present. So there's many different ways, whatever you choose, whatever you like, whatever you feel comfortable with, with which you can quickly assess, are there multiple disorders or not? <clears throat> now you have a metabolic acidosis, you have an anion gap metabolic acidosis, and we're worried about these people who like to, you know, drink antifreeze and whatever else pleases you for the day. If you guys, how many people here calculate, ooh, I shouldn't do that. I'm sorry, I, nobody got the laser pointed at them. <laughs> Um, how many people um, calculate serumosm? Yeah, very easy, right? To, you get a pretty rough idea from your sodium, unless you're, the, this number's high, this number's high, and here it's worthwhile then checking your alcohol level. Um, normal is less than 10, okay? If the measured uh, is, is greater than your calculated, there's an osmotically active something in the blood, all right? And that something's up to you to figure that out. Your calculated can never be higher than your measured. You either did math wrong or the lab is wrong, but in physiologically can exist. It's like when people tell you on rounds, someone's plateau pressure is, you know, 40 and their peak is 20. It doesn't exist. It doesn't work like that. It's the other way could be true, but that way isn't. Same thing here, right? You're, if you have a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, which that poorly projecting algorithm um, had on there, we can calculate an, a urine anion gap where you're checking urine, sodium, chloride, and potassium. A negative value tells you it's GI, a positive value that gets into the whole world of RTAs, et cetera, okay? So lactic acidosis. How many people here check lactate? Probably five, six, seven times a day, right? You live by your lactate, your base excess, et cetera. Well, lactate levels over five are generally associated with an increased mortality. But it's unclear if the lactic acid level itself is an independent contributor to mortality or just a marker of severe underlying illness. Type A is uh, the one where it's usually hypoxia to tissue, demand um, far exceeds supply, and type B are where you have drugs, toxins, and um, metabolic disorders. And the drug list PS is growing, guys. So when people come in you know, with a car accident or a trauma, it is important to figure out who they really are and what they really are and what their problems are because it gives you insight into the derangements you should expect to see once now this acute insult has happened to them, all right? And common drugs like metformin, um, um, very common um, antiretrovirals, propylene glycol, in, in, um, which is the carrier vehicle for Ativan, IV Ativan, lorazepam, et cetera, and um, high dose of propofol, the beginnings of propofol infusion syndrome, right? You usually start to see the urine discoloring they start to develop a little bit of a metabolic acidosis. And if you check their osm, you'll have an osmolar gap. So do that before the person goes into frank, you know, what looks like sepsis, and it's all really a um, propofol infusion syndrome. Treat the underlying cause of lactic acidosis. There are other treatments, but they're extremely controversial, okay? Sodium bicarbonate infusion, there is a role for it if you're truly bicarb deficient. And then Tham. How many people here have ever used Tham? 
it was in for what, like in the 19, late 90s, fan was hot, and then it's not. That's why many people here haven't used it. And this equation lives on, guys, right? The whole water and carbon dioxide. <clears throat> and the reason why I bring it up is, is if you give somebody, if you infuse bicarb here, right, this should be a two-way arrow. The stoichiometry of the equation is wherever the substrate is, you're going to push the equation in the opposite direction. So if you increase substrate here, you push the equation this way. If you increase substrate here, you push the equation this way. You give somebody bicarb, you're going to increase their CO2 production. If you already have problems ventilating somebody, or we have like the person who was on six liters, that prior gas, which we said, leave them alone, don't mess with that. You start giving them bicarb, and then you go, hmm, wonder why I can't extubate them. Right? You've increased their CO2 burden. So just remember that. So is, is lactic acid in and of itself what causes your pH to drop? What do you think? You're dressed up. Are you interviewing today? Yeah. Then I won't throw the ball at you. But I'll throw it at her. So what do you think? Does lactic acid in and of itself give you an acidosis? Just, just its own existence. If you, if you put some in a tube and you put a piece of litmus paper in it. Okay, good. Then I'm going to teach you something, right? So, no, it's not the lactic acid itself, right? So, how do we make lactic acid, right? So, glycolysis usually creates pyruvate, and that goes into the Krebs cycle, right? But under anaerobic conditions, you go ahead and produce two lactates for every molecule of glucose and two ATPs. Well, under anaerobic conditions, right, you have to hydrolyze ATP. And when you hydrolyze ATP to ADP, you create proton. So lactic acid is really a surrogate marker of proton, all right? And for each one of glucose, you make two ATPs and two lactates. So there's that linear sort of relationship. So it's a marker of proton production and it's all from the hydrolysis of ATP. We have toxins here, ethylene glycol and methylene glycol, all right? And um, they are metabolized to uh, their respective acids. And the reason why you become acidemic is, again, NAD to NADH plus H, you're making proton. And that's how you develop a um, osmolar gap and an acidosis. So again, it's a surrogate for the underlying mechanism. The, the metabolism of these alcohols will eventually decrease your osmolar gap, but your anion gap continues to increase, okay? So if you're looking for formic acid or, you know, oxalic acid, first it's going to take you six days to get it back, but second, if it comes back and it's low, you can't then say, ooh, they didn't have that. They probably metabolized it but their anion gap's rising because of this mechanism, okay? You've just dumped a boatload of proton into the body and the body can't get rid of it. Treatment should begin as soon as it's clinically suspected. Don't wait for confirmation because then they'll be dead or horribly disabled. Um, you Fomepazole is the um, standard of care now. We used to use um, um, alcohol drips, um, but not any longer. Leucovorin increases the rate of formate metabolism. Um, into the less toxic chemicals, so folinic acid or leucovorin should be added to your cocktail. Um, dialysis is most effective, especially if ethylene glycol levels are over 50. And uh, thymine and pyridoxine increase the rate of metabolism of ethylene glycol also to the non-toxic metabolites. So those are all part of the cocktail to be included. Ketoacidosis, whether it's DKA or AKA, 
Um, those are really two uh, states where you have low insulin, except in one we give insulin, in the other we don't. Uh, in the other, we turn off ketogenesis, and by doing that, you will turn on your own endogenous insulin production. So ketonemia may occur, uh, may or may not be present due to your NADH-NAD ratios, okay? Um, acetoacetate converts to beta-hydroxybutyrate. But guess what? What does the assay measure? Who has the ball? Do I have the ball? Who has the ball? Oh, you do. Oh, you throw it to somebody. All right, so, yeah, the assay measures acetone. So once you've measured it twice, don't bother yourself by measuring it again, right? Just, just for enough, it's irrelevant, right? But if acetone isn't there, it doesn't mean that alcoholic ketoacidosis or diabetic ketoacidosis may not exist. So I'm coming at you backwards with it. Just because it's not there, it doesn't mean it's really not there. You gotta think about it. And this is where your history, your physical, and the story makes all the difference in the world, right? So with DKA, first, please, volume resuscitate, volume resuscitate, volume resuscitate, because you have an, an impressive um, um, diuresis from hyperglycemia, okay? So volume resuscitate, correct the K, then, then start the insulin, not the other way around, okay? With AKA, you volume resuscitate, you give them their electrolytes, please give them thiamine before you give them their sugar, um, and then glucose-containing fluid, and then this will turn on their own endogenous insulin secretion and stop the ketogenesis, okay? Um, again, if someone's on Tylenol, you're suspecting this is the cause, stop the Tylenol, and you may or may, this is controversial, it's for every paper that says give N-acetylcysteine, which is really a nice source of glutathione. There's another one that says it doesn't make a difference. So hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, okay? Essentially, it's the loss of bicarbonate from the GI or the gain of an acid, like in a saline acidosis, okay? Bicarb drops one milliequivalent for each milliequivalent rise in chloride. That's normal. That's the normal attempt to balance. When we lose that disequilibrium, you develop a metabolic acidosis. So Hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis is really divided into the renal side, the left side of the screen, and the extra renal side, the right side of the screen. The left side of the screen is where you get into all the RTAs, and the right side is more the world of GI. So, you know, we talk about RTAs, but do you guys really know what you're saying? What do you mean by an RTA, all right? So a proximal RTA, basically, is where you have a defect in the absorption of bicarbonate. That's it. Your kidney can no longer absorb bicarbonate efficiently. I told you in the beginning, we make about 15,000 millimoles of CO2, which converts itself to bicarbonate. And we can get rid of it, and we can absorb it to maintain homeostasis. And so on the uh, blood side of the um, proximal tubules here, um, you can no longer filter. Uh, uh, the filtered CO2 can no longer be absorbed into the blood. All right, You lose it here into the urine. Um, a metabolic acidosis due to a distal tubule, tubule defect is where you can't secrete, okay? Now you can't throw out proton into the urine. So one is you can't keep bicarbonate blood. The other one is you can't throw out proton in urine. And that's typical, you know, with AKI, CKD, people with progressive CKD, et cetera. So the hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis, proximal and distal RTAs, many medications cause this in the acute setting both proximal and distal. 
heparin, Bactrim, Lithium, um, Amphotericin, aminoglycosides, ARTs, ARBs, ACE inhibitors, et cetera. Very common drugs. Um, chronic kidney disease patients constantly have a mild um, hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis for the reasons that I mentioned to you. So who has the ball? Go ahead, throw it to someone else. Oh, he's passing it so nicely to you. Oh. <laughs> so tell me, what, what do you know about saline acidosis? Our blood, our, what's your normal chloride? You're getting the easy question. What's your normal chloride? Oh, it's normally like 100 yeah. yeah, exactly. And she just told you it's 154 milliequivalents of chloride and saline, right? So you're adding a boatload of substrate, all right? So a large volume saline, um, saline resuscitation, right, gives you a huge chloride load. And the huge chloride load is because you're adding so much more milliequivalents of chloride um, than there is in blood. And this large delivery of negative charge, which is what you're talking about, right, the anion, um, the strong ion-ion difference, um, is balanced by an increase in the rate of water dissociation, right? So that formula will continue to haunt you. Because I told you in the beginning, water dissociation is, is controlled by ultimately your anions and cations. So we're adding all of this chloride into the pool called our blood, and you're gonna force water to dissociate, and you're gonna create more proton, okay, than the body can handle. And this is why we get um, saline acidosis from chloride, from sodium chloride. Um, you can treat these patients, here's a place where you can treat it and be justified, with um, a supplemental base, and you can calculate whatever their bicarbonate deficit is, and that's the equation for the calculation of bicarbonate deficit. So metabolic alkalosis, what's that story? We don't talk about that much, right? And people kind of don't care. Everybody thinks acidosis is the worst thing in the world, and we are all kind of afraid of it. You get an alkalosis and you're like, what do you have that for? <laughs> like, what's that all about, you know? So there's really, think about it this way. There's two phases, right? There's a generation phase. You've got to make bicarb. And once you've made something, you have to be able to keep it, okay? And uh, the generation phase is where you have an increase in the bicarbonate without a primary respiratory process. So those equations, again, the stoichiometry of the equation, you're not increasing CO2 and pushing it this way to make bicarb. This is coming from somewhere else. You're either taking in bicarb exogenously or you're losing acid excessively, right? One or the other is, is, is present. Um, hypovolemia, hypochloremia, hypokalemia, and a hyperaldosteronism all further contribute to a reduced bicarbonate excretion and an increase in bicarbonate um, absorption, reabsorption. The maintenance phase is where renal excretion of bicarbonate becomes limited, causing a sustained bicarbonate um, surplus. And we do this a lot to patients with NG tubes on continuous suctioning or even low intermittent wall suctioning, but the tube's in forever and ever and ever, um, diuresis, um, et cetera. I'm going to skip this because it's not projecting very well, but it's the same sort of walking through metabolic um, alkalosis. And the two bottom, the, these two are chloride responsive and non-chloride responsive. And I have a more clear slide for that, okay, coming up. So what is this post-hypercapnic metabolic alkalosis, okay? It's where you have people who have chronic um, hypercapnia, and for one reason or another, we overventilate them, meaning we drop their PaCO2 pretty precipitously, 
And then we go, oh yeah, so their problem's over now, let's wean them, right? And then they're like apneic, they fail their wean screen, they fail the wean, all of the above, none of the above happens. The bottom line is you can't get them off a ventilator. And the reason for that is, is that the PaCO2 level was decreased so rapidly, but the bicarb, the compensatory mechanism, hasn't had an opportunity to occur. So again, you've created all this bicarb, like I mentioned to you on the prior slide, and you've held on to it. And now you've got this alkalemic patient who's used to living at a CO2 of 60, 70, 80, and now that drive is gone. So you have to wait until homeostasis recurs and they can start to breathe safely on their own. And then metabolic alkalosis, for every increase in um, PaCO2 of a half to 0.7, your peripheral bicarb increases by about one. So people who have um, you know, CO2 of 60, you would expect their peripheral bicarb to be around 34, 35 or so, and you'd say that's probably where they live. Um, and if they're higher, you know, people who live in a PaCO2 of the 80s, those are the folks you see with bicarbs in the 40s when they come in. <clears throat> the chloride uh, story in metabolic alkalosis, you can calculate the fractional excretion of chloride where you have your serum and your urine chloride and uh, creatinine levels measured. And uh, it's the FINA equation. You just rearrange it. So, guys, it's the same equation for FINA. It's the same equation for the fractional excretion of chloride. It's the same equation when you've given somebody Lasix and you're trying to figure out is this pre-renal or uh, not. And uh, you can calculate a fractional excretion of urea. Again, you just, uh, it's the same uh, concept. You just plug in the different numbers. Everything, creatinine is always the same. You just put in... Uh, urea for the uh, where chloride is, etc. Okay, that's the substitute. So if your fractional excretion of chloride is less than one, then they will respond to saline, um, and that will pr prompt the kidney to excrete the excessive bicarbonate. And if it's greater than one, then they are saline non-responders. Okay, and uh, correct their potassium. And these are the people that you may consider using um, aldosterone antagonists like spironolactone. Um, and these are also the people where carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, um, uh, acetazolamide, may or may not come into play. And you typically just give a one 500 milligram dose, or you can give, you know, 125 or 250 for a day or two or whatever. There's no hard science to this. I always just remember, just give them the one dose of 500 and see what happens, okay? <clears throat> Respiratory alkalosis is you have a low PaCO2 without a, without a metabolic abnormality. Um, it's typically central in nature and your differential is as listed here. Um, the compensation is listed here. Um, you can review that when you have the slide set. Respiratory acidosis, the etiology is broad, okay? And it, I'm talking categories now, central nervous system depression, um, you know, strokes, hemorrhage, et cetera, TBI, uh, musculoskeletal, whether you're kyphotic, whether you have um, uh, phrenic nerve dysfunction, et cetera and primary pulmonary, everything from pulmonary edema to pulmonary fibrosis, um, anything that increases your dead space, okay? Anything that increases your dead space will increase your PaCO2. Um, acute respiratory acidosis, you're either gonna put non-invasive or tubum as you treat the underlying cause. Um, permissive hypercapnia, the concept of that in acute lung injury, um, and the treatment of our patients with ARDS. Our goal is to just maintain a pH of greater than 7.15. Please do not use bicarbonate here because you're gonna shift the equation to the left. You're gonna increase a higher PaCO2 burden. And now the person that you can't ventilate because they have such a great increase in dead space 
guess what? You're going to make it worse, okay? And then the compensation is as listed here. Um, so we've got two minutes, Mike. Is that it? Okay. Uh, let me just... Somebody throw the... How about you, ma'am? Right there. The, uh, it's the same gas, three scenarios, just a quick one-liner from, from people. PH 7107787. What are you going to do for the COPD exacerbation patient? Options. Uh, no, this is, this is, they showed up, they got a gas, this is the gas. So, um, there's something else going on besides just the respiratory part Okay, but how are we going to hit it first? He's, he's tachypnic, he's huffing, he's puffing, he's, he's diaphoretic, he's a little ashen gray, he's wheezing, or actually now really not moving air very well. Yeah, what's the first thing anybody's going to do? Yeah, you're either going to tube him, put him on non-invasive, right? So that's the first thing you're going to do. Same pH, same gas. Now this is a, uh, who do you want to pick? Who's next? Who, how about you? You're very serious. Always very serious. Good for you. Patient B, all right? You're very, uh, this is a vented guy on high PEEP, has a sudden increase in peak inspiratory pressures and plateau pressures. You grab your ultrasound real quick. You do a point of care ultrasound. There's no long sliding. How are you going to treat him or her? Put a chest tube in, right? What do they have? They got a pneumo, right? Patient C, patient with ARDS, 34 over 0, 4.2.8, 100%, right? They're already prone and paralyzed. You're trying to optimize as well as you can, oxygenation and ventilation, but you're in trouble. ECMO, yes. I was, I was trying to trap someone into saying the word bicarb. Listen, I use bicarb. I use it here and there when needed, all right? I am not, nope, if anybody tells you I am anti-something 100%, they don't practice in the real freaking world, okay? It's not realistic. But in this person, people are, they wanna just treat that pH. They're uncomfortable with this. And they'll do anything to correct that number and they ignore everything downstream from it, okay? So please don't do that. What about this person? COPD patient on three liters at baseline comes in with neck fash, they're intubated for surgery. Uh, how about you in the blue? What do you think? What, what will be your um, ventilation and oxygenation goals or strategies? Or what would you tell anesthesia or respiratory therapy? Yeah, and? Don't push it. Just Whatever their rate is, keep it there. Don't be doing, you know, minute volumes of 10, 12 liters to blow them down. Then you're going to have the guy who could have been extubated in the PACU or in the OR who now has to go sit in the unit for two days on a vent because he's apneic, right? <clears throat> so we have simple and mixed disturbances. Simple ones are single disturbances with compensation that normalizes the pH. Um, generally, PACO2 and bicarb move in the same direction. Okay? In simple disorders, they move in the same direction. In complex disorders, they move in opposite directions. Um, in mixed disorders, they move in the opposite direction, okay? And the pH is normal, but you can have a PaCO2 or a bicarb that is abnormal or an anion gap that is present despite having a normal pH. So when you see those kinds of trends, you already know you got mixed disorders going on. Um, the effect of acidosis is really not clear. We don't know. Um, extracellular pH may not be indicative of intracellular or mitochondrial pH. 
and that's really where all the action happens in the cells and at the level of the mitochondria. Our, our intracellular compartments are very resilient and they're very well guarded to fluctuations in pH. Um, if we tempt fate and alter that, that's when you start to have that moment of goodness where you get really nice labs, real nice looking labs for about 12, 24, 18 hours, right? 18, 24 hours. And then boom, the next day, you're like, what happened? Like now their kidneys are trashed, their liver's gone, and they're on three pressers again because we killed the intracellular machinery. Um, the effects of alkalo alkalosis are even less clear, but they're associated with a lot of bad things, arrhythmias, encephalopathies, seizures, and tetany, okay? Alkalosis actually enhances glycolysis, and what did we say about glycolysis in, in hypoxic situations? You create lactate, right? Uh, pyruvate becomes lactate, and you make two, uh, pro two ATP molecules, which under hypoxic conditions hydrolyze, and the hydrolysis yields you what? Two protons. And so you've just added acid to your system. You've made things worse, and that's a way to try to counteract the alkalosis. Um, you can look at ABGs and VBGs in healthy people and get a rough idea of people's pH and PaCO2. They're pretty close to one another. It's okay to, to send VBGs to trend that if you're looking at pH and PaCO2. But post-arrest or during CPR or post an immediate insult, that correlation is lost in the short term. And if you're getting a VBG and you think you're using that as a surrogate for an ABG, that would be wrong. You would want to get what you really meant to get. The conclusion is the physiologic and traditional, i.e. traditional method is really easy to apply at the bedside. It doesn't, uh, but it doesn't account for the non-bicarbonate buffers, okay? or the effect of electrolytes on acid-base status. Um, base excess, excess method is fast and it allows recognition of acidosis, but nothing else. You just recognize acidosis. The Stewart method is complicated. There's no real clinical difference in the use of this method in the critically ill. Decision-making doesn't change, nor does outcome, and it's pretty cumbersome. But you can do the quick and dirty where you're looking at sodium less chloride and you get a rough idea of there may be something else going on. History and physical is the crux of your diagnosis always. Not, it never replaces all of our fancy equipment. Labs and data, the further support your suspicion or force you to change gears, right? Don't fall in love with your diagnosis. You might be wrong or the body might change. Yeah, maybe the story, you know, you gotta go with the story. Maybe the story isn't quite right. And you know how the story goes, you get the history then the cousin comes in and the friend comes in and the boyfriend who was really, really there comes in, right? Then the neighbor who really saw what happened, but actually they didn't. Then you get a whole, by day three, you have a completely different story of what really happened than what you got on the admission. So keep asking questions, right? And you gotta practice, 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 right? Just think numerically, think in numbers. When you see this in front of you daily, it takes nothing to think about it. You become more accurate and you have a better understanding. Thank you.